You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the I Dig It Podcast. A podcast where we talk about the student perspective of navigating the world of archaeology and anthropology. I'm your host, Michaela. And I'm your host, Alyssa. In this episode, we'll be talking about how museums uphold white supremacy and a little bit of the history behind early anthropology and the start of museums in general. The idea for this podcast episode came from an Instagram post that I saw that talked about how museums uphold white supremacy with the example of the Met in New York. It talked a bit about display practices and the lumping together of quote-unquote primitive civilizations and how the histories of many items on display have been lost because of the collectors at the time deeming them as unimportant. Thus, their histories began only when they were held by white hands. We've also been noticing over on the Twitter land that there's been a lot of controversy with museums and the seeing them as unnecessary and awaiting their dismantle and kind of want to dive into it a little bit. So in the first part of this episode, we'll be talking about the early start to anthropology and how its racist beginnings led to an inherently racist way of managing and displaying cultural material in museums. The second half of this episode will be dedicated to case studies revolving around how museums uphold white supremacy and ways people are suggesting we can do better as we progress in the museum and heritage worlds. I know a lot of our listeners are within our field of anthropology and archaeology, but you know, in the off chance people are not, I'll talk a little bit about the beginnings of the foundation of anthropology and mainly along the lines of problematic teachings, which were kind of the ones that trickled down to today's mentalities and racisms. And I'm going to say that not all older anthropologists were thinking of the same way, and I'll give an example later on of one but a lot of what had been taught and learning through history were some of these guys that had different ways of thinking and trying to prove something in all of their research, which was usually, well, now we're calling them biases and foraging of information and armchair anthropology. And I'll get into that later. And I would also like to say that there are different groups of people, and they all have their own histories and on the study of humanity in the past, but those who are considered to be the founders of anthropology are the ones that have called the study of humanity to be anthropology. And not that they've discredited the other cultures and their practices and ways of obtaining information about the past and present and how to move forward with the future. So one thing that I'll be going into is scientific racism and the anthropologists that perpetuated that mentality. And I'll also mention some practices by an early archaeologist. And I'm not saying that they were only doing bad and teaching these racist mentalities and perpetuating them because at the time that's all they knew but they were trying to prove something and that just goes all into this institutionalized racism that we're only able to try to understand and figure out why they were thinking things of such a manner and what was the point in a way and so Yeah, let me dive into scientific racism for you. The exact definition is the use of scientific techniques and hypotheses to support or justify the belief in racism, racial inferiority, or racial superiority, or alternatively, the practice of classifying individuals of different phenotypes into discrete races. For example, measurements of brain sizes to conclude ethnocentric viewpoints. Oof. (laughs) (laughs) That's just a little bit that goes into the tip of the iceberg. It's the tip of the iceberg. It's it, it's the shroud over a lot of things that's considered scientific racism. And there's a bunch of these guys that were under that shroud and considered some of the founders of anthropology and a lot of what they were saying became facts and knowledge. And you have to believe in this one way. So let me tell you about the concept of unilinealism. 
I think I said that really weird. Around the late 1800s, the American anthropologist who was one of the big promoters of unilinealism, he helped it get a big traction in the United States and within the world of anthropology. And so unilinealism is that there is a single measurable line of human progress. So it goes, you start from being savage to being a barbarian, and then you're civilized. And you can't go any other direction. There's nothing else. It's just blah, blah, blah. There's a big issue because people are just like, yeah, that's about right. That sounds right. That these Europeans were the best in society in terms of human progress. And it's only that way because it's constructed by the people who think that. So then what does that mean? And it's like we're laughing about this now because it's utterly ridiculous in terms of where the mindset comes. But you can totally see how these ideas have trickled down into today's way of thinking for a lot of people, too. And just on how our institutions are set up, et cetera. But we'll get into that later. Yeah. So now let me tell you about Edward Bernay Tyler. He used religion as a basis for human progress. So one was monotheism at the very tip top. Polytheism was number two. And then animism and spirit worship was number three. Meaning European, American, anyone with one god which is usually the Judeo-Christian God, was at the very top and they're the most progressed and they're, they knew everything. And then polytheism, which is mainly mainly focused around Asia and the Middle East. And then you go into animism and spirit worship, which was Africans and indigenous peoples in America. Those were the lowest and that's still seen today. You see things like in the movie Princess and the Frog, that Disney movie, and I have friends on the other side with Dr. Facilier, and it's just like, oh my gosh, he he talks to spirits. Ooh, it's so weird. It's not weird. It's only weird because of how society has taught us. And it's the same with unilinealism, where being from a quote-unquote more progressed society is normal. And then if you're not from this society, then you're kind of looked down on seeing as, being seen as inferior. This is still trickled down to today. And you can look around and think about things in your life or things that you've seen and kind of contribute it back to that sort of mindset. Something that goes along with the unilinealism sort of mindset is looking at biology and making that work in a way to show that one race is superior to another. So let me tell you about the skull guy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I feel like that's the best way to explain him. It's Paul Broca. Background on him. He's a French biologist, doctor, anthropologist who formed the Anthropology of Paris in 1859, which was the same year as Charles Darwin's Origin of Species was released. He was trying to do, like I said, with biology, he was trying to see each race as their own species and use anatomical measurements in his research to project assessments as to what groups of people were more evolved. So <laughs> it's so uh, so he would look at different parts of the human body, such as the forearm to body ratio. So when you're looking at that, the shorter the arm, the forearm to body, the better and the more evolved. The longer the skull, the more intelligence and mainly within the frontal lobe. The more skull volume there is, the more intelligence. And the position of the forearm magnum, which is the hole at the base of the skull where the spinal cord passes through to connect with the spine, which happens when you become bipedal and you can stand on two legs and you can walk, which processes through evolution. But he basically used all these to say that whites were the best known quote unquote race. And in reality, those who were studied and used for measurements were never whites. <laughs> they never made it onto the list. When they were actually being studied, they used, they were studying the races for African descent, Asian descent, and those who were of white descent. Every time it was either the Asian descent or African descent that were 
the ones that met those quote-unquote qualifications. So he proved himself wrong. Yes. Every time. He proved himself wrong every single time. We talked about Lewis Henry Morgan, Edward Bernay Tyler, and Paul Broca. And let me tell you about this one guy. His name is Franz Boaz. I, he's great. He basically went in and dismantled everything that had previously just been said. <laughs> <laughs> Background on him. He was born in Prussia, mid-1800s. I think it was around the 1850s. He was a Jewish German, studied in Germany, and faced discrimination. So then he moved to America in his 30s. And around the time of his birth, it was Kaiser Wilhelm I who used xenophobia as a way to create nationalism within the German state. So a prejudice against those who were Jewish, Russian, Slavic, etc. Basically anybody who is not of Aryan looks, which is just white, blonde hair, blue eyes. So what Boaz was doing was that he presented multilinearism which was portrayed human progress as every culture started from a same common past, and each culture would then branch out to multiple different directions at the same time. It sounds a little bit more accurate than unilinealism, right? What had changed with his studies, rather than the other guys that were studying with the unilinearism, was he actually went to the Arctic and Pacific Northwest to do his studies and he studied indigenous peoples and livelihoods and environment and everything there, everything that he could at the, at those locations that he visited and something that he came to the conclusion of based on his studies and that he released was that there was no race that was clearly better than any other. And the skull size differences were due to nutrition and the environment. Makes sense. Yeah. It's all always based on environment, skin tones, eye shapes, facial features. Everything has to do within the environment that the ancestors... How your people evolved to deal with their climate the best that they could. Exactly. Franz Boas did this big job of reframing mentalities that were once believed and also faked backlash for his research and his findings and studies. One other thing that he did that's still also used today is the four field approach for anthropology. It's archaeology, linguistics, cultural anthropology, biological anthropology, and you won't find these four fields everywhere you go. So the four fields of anthropology are mainly focused in America, whereas when you go to the UK, for example, they split it up like with archaeology being its own thing entirely. But even before the whole four, four field thing, there was just anthropology and they lumped everything together because lumping was a thing and it always has been, kind of always will we. We love our boxes. What was the purpose of separating those fields? Because there's just so much more to anthropology than just being anthropology. To separate it in a way, we're saying that it inherently goes against the unilinearism mentality and framework. Mm -hmm. Because it's showing that there's so much more to learn about someone than looking at their brain size or saying that they go from a savage to a barbarian. And there's just this natural progression in human nature that you need to study and not only one way to look at it. There's so many more ways to look at it. And then the list goes on with these guys. And <laughs> a lot of these guys participated in what's now called armchair anthropology. And with armchair anthropology, it's basically that you, the anthropologist, would read about the different locations and cultures and then pass judgment onto them and quote unquote study them without ever going to the places themselves. And so it kind of goes along the lines of like, how would you know if you have never been there? And of course, like travel was not as accessible, but they're writing these books about these cultures and calling them names and savages and all these derogatory terms that are not necessarily true because they don't meet up to their standards. Mm -hmm. And an example of this would be like, oh, in this culture, people of 
like high status, like kings, queens, chiefs, etc., are buried with all of these items. And then they would find someone buried with a bunch of items somewhere else and immediate say, immediately say, oh, this person must have been important because they have these things with them. But in reality, there's so many different parts of culture that go into burial practices where like it could have been a regular person buried with all of their house items or something else. And so it's just placing those immediate judgments and putting everyone into boxes. It's like, if you do it this one way, then that's the correct way. Then everyone else should be doing it this way too. So this is what we need to look for. Since, since civilization is linear and starts from primitive to civilized, therefore, every civilization in all of the world must start from here and end up here somehow. And so based on that theory, you can pinpoint at what stage on this timeline a civilization is based on their practices that are seen in other places of the world which is just simply not how people work. <laughs> That's not it. <laughs> not how it goes. <laughs> I'm just I'm glad that it's not being practiced still to this day, especially with all the technology that we currently have and that we're able to use. But it still definitely has as we've been saying trickled down. And the anthropology in the 1900s kind of was classified, uh, especially like the early 1900s, was classified as Victorian anthropology. And that kind of goes more into nationalism as a lot of countries begin to earn their independence and become nationalistic. It goes where one ethnic group uses the media, history, science, education to define a legitimate community in a geographical location. The main issue with it is, is that there was an extreme interest in superiority versus inferiority and how it ignored connections stating A and B are not two separate groups and that their poverty is connected to another group or a different group. So they don't want to mix the superiors and who they consider to be the superiors and the inferiors whoever the they is that considers them to be just that. And so it just created these static and bounded cultures that are not allowed to overlap or change in any way. And that has definitely led into the 21st century. So within all of that, that's just anthropology. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't mean to laugh, but that's just anthropology. So with like cultural and biological mainly. And so with archaeology, the history with that is that you would go in, you would destroy and restructure, and in the end, loot it all. And take it home. (laughs) Take it home. Give it to your friends. Yes. So like the most common examples are the pyramids and Stonehenge because the archaeologists that quote-unquote discovered Stonehenge were the ones to re- rebuild it in the way that we see it today so it's like before like everything was kind of like laid on the ground like nothing was kind of on top of each other but then they just decided like oh you know what we're gonna we're gonna make it look how it used to look just for our recollection it's like no you just draw pictures of it <laughs> don't do it is wait hang on so Stonehenge didn't look like it does no today yeah. Okay. When they had like when they started excavating at the site, I think it was like early 1900s. But the the main archaeologist went in and they got something to pull the one of the stones on top of a different stone in the way where it's like the two stones and then the one on top to make it like mm-hmm. a little arc. Yeah. So that wasn't like that before. And I don't know if he did it for all of the ones around, but there's photographs of what he did and it's like oh yeah we're gonna restore it to make it look as it once did but they didn't know how it looked as it once did just based on their assumptions let me tell you about one archaeologist um we're just gonna go into one archaeologist so then we can move on to the next section (laughs) so heinrich schliemann he was an archaeologist in the 1800s mainly a german businessman and archaeologist 
and he was titled the father of modern archaeology. So what he was trying to do was he sought to prove historiosity of the Trojan War. And so he was excavating the site of what he thought to be Troy, which was now called Hisarlik. Hisarlik? 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 Yeah, yeah. (laughs) In 1871 to 1872. The thing is, was that he didn't actually know if it was the site of Troy or not, and he just kind of guesstimated it and bulldozed the entire site. But... (laughs) He found the early Bronze Age. That's what was. That's that's what yeah, Dan. <laughs> so I'll tell you the good and bads of him. And apart from the bulldozing, the bads are his insatiable desire to prove his hypothesis. He excavated the site way too hastily. You know, he may have falsified some of his discoveries and artifacts. And then he also lied to authorities, falsified data, and smuggled treasure out of the country. (laughs) And the treasure is called Priam's treasure. I believe I'm saying that correctly. He basically split up the findings among his friends and smuggled them out of the country, donated them to a German museum, which was there until World War II, when it was then disappeared by Russians that they soon discovered when it reappeared in 1993. So yeah, the Russians confiscated the treasure and then put it into the museum later on. It seems that he's been practicing all of these bad examples, but he actually did some good. But the thing is, a lot of those old archaeologists kind of go in the same way where it's like they didn't do what we now consider to be good practices, but have done some sort of good in the study that we obtained from it. But I think we can never learn enough about a site because there's always something to learn because everything that we learn is just somebody's interpretation of what they find nobody lived in the time of troy nobody alive today was there and unless we have writings even the writings can just be like some fiction novel or what we would do differently with the site of troy is we would use Something like magnetometry or ground penetrating radar to first see if there was anything there before digging into it. And then if we were going to dig into it, it'd be very meticulous ground survey and excavation layer by layer, not bulldozing the entire hill. So a lot has changed since these original archaeologists and anthropologists. Yeah. And I think... Like, this is also portrayed in, like, modern media, too, on how archaeology happens. It's still, in media, we (laughs) see it as how it used to be and not how it is, because how it is is arguably more boring and not Hollywood-worthy. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, like, I experienced this VR archaeology game called The Archaeology, And the first thing that you do when you're in the game in VR is that you look down and then there's a TNT detonator and you plunge (laughs) it down and then it explodes the entrance of the cave, which there are artifacts in that you have to go find. Don't dynamite historic sites. (laughs) No, that's not cool. Just because it's portrayed in the media, everyone knows what's portrayed in the media is not always factual, but... I think there has to be something that proves this. that's not how it happens because a lot of people believe that's how it happens. So with all of that being said, these foundations of anthropology and archaeology have led way into methods that are still being seen within museums, especially as with Schliemann, how he donated everything to the German museum that was looted and that was not supposed to be there. A lot of these items that had been looted that are now in these big museums aren't ever going to leave or see themselves back into their original countries or origins. We'll be talking more about that after this break. Welcome back. So for this discussion, I'm going to paraphrase a lot from the paper titled White Sanctuaries, Race and Place in Art Museums by three professors of sociology, They are David Embrick from the University of Connecticut, Simon Weffer 
from Northern Illinois University and Sylvia Dominguez from Northeastern University. So this study specifically is centered around the Art Institute of Chicago, or the AIC, and it examines how museums maintain white spaces despite being an institution for the greater public. Museums are generally thought of as a public good created to introduce people to their history and other histories from around the world, both past and present. And while the goal for some museums is to curate and preserve collections of artifacts and art for scientific study, increasingly museums have shifted their goal to include serving the general public and their interests. So an issue with museums, then is that the curatorial staff often preserve certain histories above others. And so museums often hold the preservation of certain histories above other histories. For example, in 2018, the Brooklyn Museum came under fire for hiring a white woman as their consulting curator for African art. And it's just, it's this big issue of like misrepresenting spaces, especially by people who don't necessarily have a claim to those cultures. So how do these institutions in racialized social system, also known as RSS, facilitate white supremacy? So some of the questions addressed in this paper specifically are, what are the specific racial mechanisms within these institutions that reproduce colorblind and other racial ideologies? How do these institutions serve as both physical and mental white sanctuaries? And how are these spaces complicated by class or other positionalities in society? White sanctuaries was a term that I hadn't heard before, which I thought was really interesting in reading this paper. Because it's not only like talking about how white spaces are dominated by white actors, but also how these spaces are designed to make white people more comfortable and like reinforce their own ideals. And so that's kind of the idea behind a white sanctuary versus a white space. And so much like all racialized institutions, museums reinforce existing social and racial order on of the society in which they reside. So if your museum is in a largely Eurocentric area, it's going to reinforce those histories over the modern ideals over past ideals. For example, in America, a lot of museums will enforce like ancient Greek and Rome and this idea of intellect and theory and theology and that sort of stuff over like indigenous populations that were here before we were. The author's argument here is that museums and specifically nationally recognized museums, like big ones like the Met and the AIC, they help maintain the status quo dominance of white supremacy and they help to facilitate both whiteness and elitism and call to nostalgia of a specific type of normative. So this means museums' institutional role in maintaining white supremacy as white sanctuaries is especially relevant in social and political climates that are rampant with white fears of becoming the racial minority. And so I think we've seen a lot of this in stuff we've discussed before about like history is written by those who won quote-unquote win, the deciders of what goes into the history books are the people who oppress those who don't get a say in what goes in the history books. And I think that idea is especially prevalent in museums, like we'll see in the coming points. The authors note here that space is about power, where space is politically contested. Space is a politically contested field one in which capitalism itself helps design our everyday lived experiences and our social relations. Hence, if you want to limit access to knowledge, for example, in museums, one of the easiest ways to do so is to limit access to space. And how we see this in museums is the histories we want to project onto people take up the most space in a museum. And the histories that we don't want to project are in dark rooms in the basement that are hard to get to or dimly lit corners of the museum that you only walk through if you happen to wander off into them. And I think 
have you have you ever experienced this in the museums you've gone to? Because I definitely have, like noticing walking like right into a museum and you just see Greek and Roman stuff. And then you have to walk through those parts of the museum to even get to different parts of the world. Yeah, you have to go down like several different corridors to just find art from Africa or an Asian section and then they lump together like all of Asia into one tiny section and they're like oh yeah this is like a really big Asian section (laughs) or they're lumped together like South America Africa and Asia into one section whereas like Greek and Roman history gets its whole like corridor and and then all the other countries get glass cases and dimly lit rooms Yeah, so those are just some examples of how museums are inherently racist. (laughs) And I mean, I'll have to say that I know not every single museum has the budget or the access for different objects from different cultures. And so when they clump them together, that just might be all that they have. But those usually go with the smaller museums. And I think what we're talking about here mainly goes with the bigger, more touristy museums, but not specifically talking about every single museum and how they have those little clumped together areas. But it might beg for the question as to if they should be clumped or if they should have their own separate little area. But then you have to consider the size of the museum. And I mean, there's there's a lot to think about there. And it's not always up to one person's decision. You have to go through an entire board. Yeah. So like we talked about earlier with anthropologists kind of coming up for a way to determine civilized versus uncivilized people, we often see museums highlight which societies and cultures they think are civilized and which are considered to be more primitive or exotic based on just how they're presented in the museum in general. One current issue where we can see this happening is on the removal of Confederate statues. Here, many people argue that these symbols have nothing to do with racism and white supremacy, and that instead, such symbols represent our history and our heritage, or even our sense of national pride. And dismantling them is anti-American or anti-white. And others argue that the removal is necessary if the nation is to ever get past its racist history. And an interesting thing to note on this discussion of statues is the periods in which they were installed, which was typically in the mid to late 1900s when Jim Crow laws were happening and the civil rights movement was happening and starting to gain traction, and not during the Civil War, as most people claim they were. And so these statues were erected as a sign of protest against these civil rights movements, not as a sign of commemorating these generals or whatever during the civil or during the Civil War. So with the Art Institute of Chicago, or also known as the AIO, and just in general how they're set up, this museum in particular, which is the second largest museum after the Met in New York, the authors did a study over multiple weeks analyzing characteristics of the museum, how it was set up, who frequented these spaces, their accessibility, and their treatment of visitors throughout the week. And so the museum is set up in a way that quote-unquote readily and enthusiastically highlights European or white cultures and minimizes other cultures. These eras are deemed as the genesis of Western civilization and are seen as superior in both academy and popular culture. And so with Greek and Roman statues, for example, the art itself has often been used as examples of race and aesthetics, while simultaneously missing the fact that these pieces were often painted and is a function of time, weathering, and not the importance of race that these artifacts are currently white. I think throughout American schools, or me growing up and going through school in general, I always was preached like the like cleanliness and sophistication of like Greeks and Romans, and look at these beautiful white statues and how elegant they are, and like that was kind of the the mood around like learning about Greek and Roman history. And it wasn't until like a couple years ago 
when they were like, oh, these were actually painted in really gaudy colors or like colors we would think of as gaudy as like bright yellows and greens and oranges and that sort of thing. And yeah, I think it's it's very interesting how we associate white with intelligence, even just in the appearance of a piece of rock. So with the AIO, to get to any other part of the museum, like I mentioned earlier with my experience in museums, visitors must walk through antiquity of ancient Greece and Rome and making them the center of the museum and the center of history. Another issue is how they treat non-European art, for example, Islamic art, which in the AIO is isolated at the lower levels of the museum with poor lighting only accessible from a difficult-to-find stairway resulting in less foot traffic in general. And another example is going to the Latin American section referred to as Indian Art of the Americas and African Galleries. So they're lumped together. There are no modern art pieces, for example, by Frida Kahlo or Diego Rivera or contemporary African artists like Elena Tsi. Instead, they present artifacts that are more primal in nature, like crude figurines and really old pieces of clothing and that sort of thing. Something else that is interesting that I had never really thought of about museums in general, but makes so much sense, is the treatment of East Asian art and how that's so much different than uh, South American and African art, is that for East Asian art in museums, often they highlight like pottery and elaborate wood carvings and paintings and texts and all this suggesting that Asian art is considered as having a higher status according to Eurocentric perspectives. And this kind of puts like East Asia and Europe almost on an equal platform with everyone else below them. And I've totally seen that in museums I've visited. They show the really elaborate decorative pieces that are so beautiful like blue porcelain pottery porcelain jade and everything's just so intricate and then they're all recent and more modern and then you go into other sections just not not the same at all and I wonder how much that plays a role in like how trading operates or has operated throughout time because we would trade things like culture and spices and art and whatnot with East Asia. But in other parts of the world, it was genocide and slavery that we traded with countries. So yeah, interesting how we like to put down the cultures we take advantage of. Another thing that um, the authors noticed with uh, these spaces or the museum in general was the management of access is clearly a disparity between economic groups or people in the community. So parking for the museum is upwards of $50 a day. General admission is anywhere from 14 to $30 with additional costs for like coat check or electronic information guides. So a family of three can end up spending over $100 for a day at the museum. And so just by default, that's eliminating access to the museum for such a large population of people. They get around this by, they used to offer free days, but now it's free hours for the museum specifically on Thursday evenings from 5 to 8 p.m. And during this time, you need an ID. And so that excludes homeless people and undocumented people from entering these spaces. And another thing they talked about, two of the people on this paper are Black. And so when they went into the museum when they were doing the research, they were noticing just a difference in treatment just while they were walking around the museum. Specific demographics that were entering the museum were largely like white families. Um, and like during the free hours, it was largely like college age students, like young 20s coming into the museum. And so there were all these different things that they were noticing about just like what the museum attracts in general and how that relates to like what's displayed. So one thing I want to pull in from the original Instagram post that we got this idea from for the podcast is they talked about the Met Museum. And so how with the Met, 
they would create an aesthetic that generated a false sense of timelessness um, for specific displays. There's this one wing. So Egypt would have its own wing and Greek and Romans would have this its own wing. But then in another wing, they lumped Africa, the region of Oceania, and pre-Columbian America all in one tribalist group of arrangements. The Instagram post talked specifically about how this kind of generated a false sense of timelessness and how even though these regions all had their own timelines of when they began and when they became civilizations and whatnot, they were all lumped in the same room as if they were all occurring at the same time. And so it made like a static impression that all of these civilizations were equally primitive just based on the way that they were displayed. And so anyone walking into it would think that, that they were all equally primitive because they're all in the same room, all lumped together and mixed together, not given their own narrative. And so their big question was, why does Egyptian art have its own wing, but African art is confined to one third of a department? Interesting how museums kind of uphold this notion of, or uphold white supremacy in general. Something that you talked to me about too, I had forgotten about this part, but in the movie Black Panther, yeah, they kind of give an ode to the complexities and politics of museums and talk about how like there's problematic elements of racism and white supremacy and like yeah, so Killmonger went into the British Museum, I believe. I believe it's the British Museum. I'm pretty sure it's the British. I think it was a fake museum, but it was yeah, okay, an yeah, ode yeah. to the British Museum. Yeah. <laughs> so basically in Black Panther, Killmonger went into a museum which is supposed to be representing uh, a major museum so what had happened was he was going around this exhibit and it was a lot of african art and um, artifacts and there's one thing i believe it was from wakanda from the main city and culture of the movie basically the art he was looking at the artifact in this docent or Somebody who works at the museum comes up and just asks him questions. And he was just like, yeah, you guys stole this from my people. This shouldn't be here. This should be with my people. That's when we learn about characters. And I'm not going to do any spoilers. But it kind of what I had found after seeing that movie was that there was a lot more people aware of the looting and taking of op- taking objects from different cultures and placing them into these big museums and not coming to the conclusion that they need to give them back. But it's like, oh, no, they're better here. They're yeah. safe. We'll take care of them. Yeah, I think this was the first accurate representation of the mistreatment of populations by museum patrons. And yeah, I think. Black Panther did a good job at bringing awareness to the issue in that way. Yeah, and a lot of other issues. And a lot of other issues. Black Panther, go watch it. That's one of the main problems that is shown in media. It was through Black Panther. but And it kind of begs for the question of, like, how can we change? Because he's just like, hey, Killmonger was like, hey, like this needs to go back to my people. Which are... like fictional people but it's still representing very real issue very oppressed peoples who have been oppressed you know after this break we'll talk about examples of how we can change and move forward so recently there's been attempts in kind of diversifying exhibits within museums to make them more inclusive a lot of this has been happening in specifically the diversification of rotating exhibits with artists of color and an attempt to like balance the whiteness of the rest of the museum by emphasizing these other artists. But this brings in the issue that if artists of color are only in the building on a temporary or rotating basis, it doesn't impact what the core of the museum is in its presentation, which is centered on whiteness. And so the issue with this is until the core of the museum increases substantially with 
diversification, it'll remain a white space. And an example from this study in particular showed that while they were doing the study, there were 23 out of 46 pieces by Monet being presented, but only 10 out of 300 pieces of African-American art in general being presented in the museum. And so that just goes to show what the focus is in many of these museums on just white actors and history in general. And so that's that's one way that museums are trying to figure out <laughs> how to diversify their their space. And a mutual person we follow on Twitter tweet, no museums, we've moved past the need for museums in their current form. And this kind of brought up a lot of comments mostly from people like working in museums talking about like their function and why they're needed and that sort of thing. And I think the big argument for why they are good was mostly looking at like smaller museums that focus on like indigenous populations or stuff like that, that aren't really centered around like European art in general or are more like local. So for example, we have like, the Vikings Museum in New York, which I thought was really good, that just focused on the Viking population throughout history. And I personally think that museums like that are very valuable because it's not trying to show the history of the world as a narrative that's centered around one specific group of people. It's more about the individual civilizations as they were, rather than as we encounter them in the white world the issue is mainly with the big museums and them being the representatives that people will go out of their way go on road trips go on trips just to visit those museums you look at the british museum the louvre the met etc people go there because there are these big museums that they can see all these cool artifacts pieces of art all this stuff but they don't really go for anything other than than what's being represented. You think of the Louvre, you think of the portrait of Mona Lisa. What else does the Louvre have? Stuff from King Louis? I've been to the Louvre twice, and the Louvre is too big to see in (laughs) one day. I discovered, I use the word discovered because it was, I had no idea it was there, but we just followed the stairs all the way down and there was this giant reconstruction of a massive like Roman wall hill fort, like just underground under the Louvre. Oh my God. And it was insane. And something that I personally think should have been like a big part of the museum. For example, like when you go to see the Mona Lisa, you walk through hallways and hallways of so much art, like European art, and you just don't pay attention to it because you're focused on going to see the Mona Lisa and then in the Mona Lisa it's a tiny like 12 inch painting on a giant white wall with hundreds of people surrounded around it holding their iPads up holding their iPads I put like a snapchat filter on the Mona Lisa I don't know if that's like (laughs) bad or whatever but yeah it's just such a weird environment that museums have created where we value certain pieces over others and in that we lose so much and I think that comes a lot from just like what we're taught in school is when we're taught about like European art or whatever we talk about Botticelli and Mona Lisa and yeah we we learn about these very specific European paintings we don't learn about everything else we don't learn about ancient mesopotamia and well we kind of learn about that but we learn about like big ziggurats and with that i would have to say i never took a world history class within high school that didn't teach me about everywhere else because i was in an ap course but even in within that ap course the predominant areas that you were looking at was recent history within europe and europe and asia mainly because of communism in Russia and China. And I remember even on the AP test, like there was something about communism on one of the essays. But, and so when we're going through the entire world history, we kind of spent some time 
going through like other cultures, but it was mainly a Eurocentric historic past that we learned in a world history class and barely even touching on East Asian. And I would have to say that with that and even in AP art history, and then even in high school, there's AP European history. So it's not even anything else. It's just European history and American history. But even in the art history, you mainly touch on like the Renaissance and the Renaissance in Europe and nowhere else and all these big art periods that happen through Europe because those are the art pieces that are displayed in the major museums and the ones that have the most analysis on because they're these big pieces of art and these artists that have been revered. It's like, oh, well, Van Gogh wasn't popular during his time, but look at him now. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's awesome for him. But there's so many other artists that are just never known. It's like, oh, here's this beautiful painting by Frida Kahlo or something. And it's like, oh, yeah, well, she, let me tell you about her little dirty past. It's like, I well, tell me about her as a person, man. Kind of like going in with that with like the big museums and holding these big pieces of artwork that people drive hours to see. And people people like what they like. So they'll if they see that there's an exhibit holding on for... They like what's familiar, like what they've learned in school. Like what yeah. they know. And so if they hear that well, hear that something on Rembrandt is coming to town, like they're going to go see that because yeah. they learned it about it in school. Yeah. yeah. And so with that, I think maybe the dismantling of the big museums, I'm not saying dismantle them, but along those lines of dismantling the big museums, hosting smaller museums that are able to have the funding and popularity as these big museums are that are just very localized and regional like when I was in Bulgaria, there was there were several like museums around the towns that we were at. They were very small, but they had so many artifacts that were so important to that region, to the culture. And it was incredible. Like I would have never seen some of the artifacts that were there because they were not going to be in the big museums because nobody's going to care about this little region in Bulgaria. I'm not saying nobody, but a gen- like I don't want to say general public either because that's also not a good term. But people, like you said, want to know what's familiar to them and they want to be able to go and see what's familiar. It's like, oh my gosh, I remember learning about this when I was five years old. Look at it. And I think that just goes like on top of dismantling museums, we also need to change education and how we teach to focus on Eurocentric places like for example when I was in Cambodia I did this uh internet conference thing with like a bunch of classrooms in the U.S. just like talking about my research and at the beginning of it I showed like a bunch of pictures I showed Stonehenge and the Colosseum and the Great Pyramid of Giza and a picture of Angkor Wat and I pointed to all of these photos and the kids were able to say like, oh, that's the Colosseum in Rome and oh, that's the pyramids in Egypt. And when I pointed to Angkor Wat, no one knew what it was. And like the Khmer Empire was such a giant part of world history in general, but no one in America knows about it. And I think, yeah, I think we as an education system just need to do better at being all encompassing and not focusing on like white ideals and Eurocentric places. And yeah, just, and I think it starts with education and then mm-hmm. museums can follow that. Yeah. Well, we can talk about that in a, another podcast too, because <laughs> there's a lot to dive in with that. There are museums and museum associations that are making aims to diversify their the museums. For example, Jonetta Cole, who was then president of the Association of Art Museum Directors, made it a core mission for museums to diversify the museums, including the boards of the museums, because it's one thing for one part of the collections department to say, hey, we should have a little exhibit like this. But then it has to go through so many different other levels. And then at the top, it might just be a very opinionated person that only wants to display things from a certain culture. And so then you won't ever see any sort of diversifying into the museums or the exhibits that are featured in the museums. And New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio had this Create NYC agenda 
cultural agenda. So for cultural institutions to submit a diversity plan with measurable goals for how they're going to continue to make progress in diversifying and kind of said like, hey, if you're not going to submit this plan, we're going to cut funding. Mm. So it's kind of making it like if you don't show how you're planning on diversifying your. Yeah, because it's one thing to say that you're going to do it. And it's another thing to actually like, hey, we want to do this. Like, this is how we're going to do it. This is our plan. This is how long it's going to take. And that's so important because if you don't have a plan, how are you ever going to get to the top of the mountain? It's easy to just brush it off and never do it. Exactly. In an article that I was reading about diversifying from museums, it said, we're still moving through this particular era with such a huge lack of equity that we have to depend on the goodness of white folks to see these changes being made. What happens when there is a backlash? That is the story of the 1990s. And just kind of waiting for that pendulum swing and something's just going to come back. So you can make these great strides for changes as we're currently seeing, especially now with the Black Lives Matter movement and just so many people just coming forward, telling their stories and demanding change and people in institutions being like, you know what, we are going to change. Are they ever going to change? Let's hope so. (laughs) And if they don't, we'll stay on them. Yeah, yeah. I think that's our duty as archaeologists is to make sure everyone's represented in the way that they should be. Yeah, that was good chat. <laughs> good chat. All right. Um, see you next week. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. Yeah. No. I mean, I think this this topic's very important because museums play a massive role in education of very large they populations, do. even foreign entities also when they come to visit. So I think... Um, a lot of change has to happen in terms of museums and archaeology and diversity in archaeology also. So here's to hoping we jump on that wave. Well, especially with such as a culture as living in America, the United States. There we go. Not America. There's just so many different people with different ethnic backgrounds that live here. I know Long Beach, California has one of the biggest Cambodian populations in the United States. How are we seeing it being represented? I didn't even know about that until I started doing research in Cambodia. So yeah, I believe it's Garden Grove that's Westminster is one of the biggest Vietnamese populations, and there's just so many different counties and cities that have these giant populations, and you even go into these cities and you see billboards with different languages on them. So it's like you'll see something in English, but then you'll see something in Vietnamese, or you'll see something in Korean, and it's just so cool because we live in such a diverse society. Well, I'm living in such a diverse society in Southern (laughs) California. Which is also has a lot of institutionalized racist living standards and behaviors and museums and it's not representative of no the people living in these cities. Yeah. And that goes for the museums that are occupying these cities that they they are standing in. They don't represent mm-hmm. the people living there. They're representative of a very particular past that they're trying to portray. And that's the rest of my tea. So let us know what you think. Are museums important? That's a big question going around right now. Like, do we even need museums? That is a big question that's going on. And if so, what can we do to change them without completely getting rid of Or do we need to completely get rid of them and reconstruct them from the bottom up? Let us know. Our DMs on Instagram and Twitter are always open. And you can always send us an email at idigitpodcast at gmail.com. Yes. Thanks for joining in, and we hope everyone is staying safe and informed and healthy, and look forward to seeing you next time. Bye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.
Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.